you'll turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 2, continue our study through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. And as I read through this text, I want you to look out and pay attention to how often Paul uses the terminology of judge or judgment. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law, who, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Every thought, or even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In this epistle, Paul is writing to a church in the chief city of Greek culture, Rome. In chapters in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32, he condemns the clear ungodliness and unrighteousness of the Greek culture. And in doing so, he specific he uh, he focuses on two sins. Specifically, idolatry and lesbian and homosexual behavior. And in doing that, he's offering a typical Jewish critique of pagan culture. 
Now, he lists a whole host of other sins right at the, during the last few verses of chapter 1. Now, let me remind you of what we talked about in the introductory sermon. The church in Rome is a mixed congregation. It consists of both Jews and Gentiles. It was started by a Jewish element who heard the um, sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost. They bring gospel back to Rome. But then they are kicked out of the city and the Gentile audience starts to grow and the demographics of the congregation shift. Now, Paul's letters... So, let me step back. The the congregation had Jews in it and Gentiles. And Paul's letters were often read publicly to the congregation. So, they would be meeting like we're doing, and uh, they would announce that they had received a letter from the Apostle Paul, and it would be read to the congregation. You can imagine the, the pleasure that the Jewish Christians must have had with the introductory content to Paul's letter. The strong condemnation of idolatry and sexual deviance and all host of cultural sins, uh, almost to the point where they may have cheered his letter on. But then Paul shifts focus in chapter 2. And I think it's good for us because we may find this more relevant to our own spiritual condition than chapter 1. Most of us, because it's so clear in nature, uh, we understand not to pursue idolatry. That's why we're here. We're worshiping the one true God, right? We're we're not worshiping some idol. And we believe in the Ten Commandments. So we have some sense of sexual ethics in this congregation. We tend to to be the ones who would condemn American culture, right? To judge American culture. What Paul is doing here in chapter 2, his purpose in this section is to reveal to the Jews, the religious people, the people with a moral compass, that they too, like the Gentiles, are sinners under the wrath of God, in need of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this under two headings. First, the hypocritical judges. And then second, the righteous judge. The hypocritical judges and the righteous judge. To whom, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, to whom is Paul speaking? I've made some assumptions in the introduction. I've told you it's primarily Jews. But it's not apparent when you read that, when you start off reading chapter 2, who Paul is talking to. It seems like he may just be continuing on uh, in the same line of thought. But I want you to pay attention to some indicators that tell us Paul has shifted his focus to some, someone else in the audience. There is a noticeable shift in conversation partners here. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 32, the people Paul is addressing, he speaks to them using the third person plural pronoun. 
them and they. Listen, Romans 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's, the, that's how he, that's the pronoun choice he uses in section, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Look at chapter 2. It changes. From they and them, Paul says, therefore you, second person pronoun. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. The yous are judging the them. Now who are these people? Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew, the yous are the Jews. Paul is speaking to the Jews. They are the ones who stand in judgment over the Gentile world. Now, the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the people of the law. They were moral and religious folks. Kind of like us, right? Do you ever feel a spirit within yourself wanting to judge and condemn? John Calvin in his commentary says this about who Paul is speaking to here. uh, Calvin says, this reproof in chapter 2 is directed against hypocrites who dazzle the eyes of men by displays of outward sanctity. They're the the ones who go to the temple like you are here at the church. The ones who study the Torah like we read our Bibles. We uh, we need to be more aware, self-aware, that the rebukes of Paul in Romans chapter 2 are probably more appropriate for conservative Bible-reading, Bible-believing Christians than those of chapter 1. Paul is speaking to potential problems that we might have in our own hearts. The Jews embraced the truth of God in creation and in Scripture. They thoroughly studied the law of God. Think of who's writing this letter. Paul the Pharisee. That was what he did. He dedicated his life to knowing all of the minute details of the law and ordering his life around it. They were scrupulous law keepers. And they took on the role of judging others. Look how often the word judge is used in this section. In verse 1, it's used three times. It's used in verse 2. It's used in verse 3. Two times. It's used in verse 5. So seven times judge or judgment or judges is used in the opening five verses. Paul attacks the errors of their judgments. 
they are biased judges. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says this. After He's already said, look, you judge the, the Gentile culture. But you do those same sins. And they're thinking to themselves, us? No, we, we don't do these sins. We'll come to this in just a minute. But they were biased. They judged based on, on their group. We are the people of God, and you are not the people of God. Somehow we must be better than you because we're the chosen ones and you're not. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says this. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? They're the privileged ones. They're the ones who God makes His covenant with. They're the ones who God gives the law to. They're the ones instructed about proper worship. God has been patient with them. He hasn't turned His back on them yet. There is a sense of pride, of spiritual superiority. And I would say this, that Jesus and Paul are very concerned when they see those types of characteristics expressed in the human heart. We'll talk about Paul uh, and, and his approach to making judgments in a minute. So the Jews think that they're better, spiritually superior. But let me give you two examples of the finest specimen of Jewish of the Jewish nation that we can offer up to you. And let's, let's place them under the, the scrutiny of judgment, like the Jews are doing to the Gentile culture. David and Solomon. We'll take David and Solomon. And we'll take them because they ruled during the nation's golden age, the peak years of Israelite nationality, the golden age. The economy was doing well at that time for the Jews. Their military was strong. Their religious institutions, remember David prepares and Solomon builds the temple of God. It is a high point in Jewish history. They were men of great wisdom. We talked recently in the sermon series on the life of David. He wrote more than half of the Psalms. He has the distinct uh, title of a man after God's own heart. This is, this is a great example of a, of, of a man who loves the Lord his God. And then what about his son Solomon? Well, Solomon wrote, authored the Proverbs. Most of the Proverbs, at least, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He was particularly gifted by God with wisdom. The wisest man in the whole of the Old Testament, we're told. And yet, let's examine their morality. David, what does he do? He commits sexual sin. Sexual perversion. And then he covers it up with murder. Murder. 
Oh, and what about Solomon? This man of great wisdom. He marries many foreign women. And in the latter days of his life, when he should be more mature, when he should have learned his lessons, he starts to cave to idolatry. He becomes an idol worshiper and he is rebuked for it in Scripture. That's the best. And yet we see in David and Solomon the same moral failures that we saw in chapter 1. They're superficial in their judgments. They're biased, they're superficial. They focus on outward performances. The religious rites, the ceremonial, holiness, sacrifices, circumcision, washing of their hands, eating the right clean foods. Jesus condemns this outward show of righteousness in that sermon that we were reading, in the Sermon on the Mount. There were three pillars to Jewish piety. Giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. They did all of these outward works of righteousness. But they did them for all the wrong motives. They had the appearance of godliness, but deep in their hearts there were some serious Problems. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And he calls them hypocrites over and over again. So their judgments are biased, their judgments are superficial, and they're based on human comparisons, not on the nature of the law. Itself, The Jews were quick to compare themselves with others. And, and if we were to judge Jewish culture and Roman pagan culture, who would you consider more righteous? The Jews. If you were to take American conservative Christian culture compared to American, um, I don't know if pagan is the right word, secular culture, who would you decide is more righteous? Christians, right? We're we're denying these things. We're not practicing these things. The Jews, they weren't practicing these things. They were denying them. They were outspoken, condemning them. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, The Jew was so convinced of his righteousness because he was better than the tax collector. But if God's law is our standard, if the high bar of perfect holiness is our standard, then which one of us today want to raise our hands and say we're better? Which one of us wants to cast the first stone? This is what Paul is getting at. Yeah, Paul made judgments. But he always made them from the perspective of him being the chief of sinners. Do we judge American culture saying, well, who am I? 
I'm the chief of sinners. I'm no better than them except for by the grace of God. We move on from this point. I'm going to conclude with what Jesus says about the the Jewish standard of judgment in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. How do you judge yourself? How do you judge others? And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? That was the problem. Well, they could pick up on all the minor miscues of other people, other Jews. They were good at judging. They even judged Jesus. They were great at judging and criticizing. But they didn't look within their own hearts. They didn't do it from a right spirit. They didn't do it under the authority of the law itself. Now, Paul turns their attention to the righteous judge. And that's our second point. The righteous judge. <clears throat> Verses two, two and three, listen to what Paul says. We know that the judgment of God. I don't care about your judgments, you Jews, you hypocrites. We know that the judgment of God, that's what matters. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So if we're looking at it from the judgment of God, can we condemn American culture right now? Absolutely. But we better also condemn ourselves. We better condemn ourselves too. If we're going to base it on the righteousness of God. Do we not forget that we we say a confession of sin every service? Why? Because we've got problems too. We know that the, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, in this section, he gives us some of the characteristics of God's judgment. In verse 5, he tells us that God's judgment is righteous. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In order to rightly judge, you also must be morally pure. We're not morally pure in the sense that God is. He is holy and pure, therefore He can judge. He's a righteous judge. His judgment is unbiased. In verses 9 to 11, God treats all Jews and Greeks alike in in the same fair and unbiased way. But what I want us to focus on is this. God's judgment is thorough. Thorough. In verse 5, 
Paul speaks of their hard and impenitent hearts. Outwardly, they look pretty clean. Outwardly, they look pretty moral. Like the majority of us. Outwardly, we look good. But it's our hearts that condemn us. It's it's our familiarity with our hearts that drive us to that table. That drive us to Christ. Then in verse 16, Paul speaks of that day, the final judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges what? The secrets of men. Now, that is a thorough judgment. You can't judge the secrets of men. You can only judge to an extent from the exterior. It's interesting in in chapter 7, when Paul is is highlighting the, the nature of the law to expose secret sins, he picks the commandment, you shall not covet. Now, in my understanding of Old Testament law, that's the one commandment that doesn't have the death penalty attached to it. Do you know why? How do you condemn someone for coveting? We don't know. We can't read the motives of the heart. That is a secret sin. And Paul uses that in chapter 7, verse 7. He says this, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? No, of course I wouldn't say that. Paul says by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin in my heart. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of secret heart sins, coveting. Paul has moved from open, clear sins that are contrary to nature to the law, to the secret, subtle sins of the heart. And we've got to understand the law and God's judgment from that perspective in order to really appreciate how much we need Christ. Why did God give the Jews the law? Was it to fix the the ignorance and the mistakes of the Gentiles? Hey, I don't want you guys making their mistakes. Let me give you the law and you you can gain righteousness that way. Now, theoretically, he talks about that here. If we are perfect in heart motive, in the secrecy of our heart, and in our outward actions. Yes, but no one is. You see, that's the problem. That's the bad news. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul tells us why he gave the law, why God gave the law. Chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
through the law, we are made aware of how desperately wicked we truly are in the sight of God. It, the law kind of functions like a check engine light in your car. You all know that. You're driving along and you get the check engine light. The check engine light tells you there is a problem and you need to get it fixed. But the check engine light doesn't fix the problem for you. It just signals that there is a problem. That's what the law does. It signals, as Paul said in Romans 7, that we have a spiritual heart problem. That there is some malfunction in our nature. It doesn't tell us how to correct it. The gospel does. The danger of moral people, people who strive to do good, if they're not careful, there is a way that we can do that and we should do that as Christians. We should be pursuing uh, holiness in our lives. But not in the sense of trying to gain our justification before the judgment seat of God. None of us can do that. The danger facing the Jews and and us is self-righteousness and pride. The Jews misunderstood the place of the moral law. They assumed the sin problem could be fixed by knowing, studying, and keeping the law. But our ultimate problem isn't that. It's a corrupt heart, an unrighteous nature. The law cannot change that. We need to die to our old nature and be raised to a new nature. We need to be new creatures. We need to be born again, Jesus says. You see, it's not a moral tweaking that we need. It's a whole new nature that we need. And that's what Christ comes to give in the gospel. So here's the bad news to the Jews. They have the law, they have an appearance of righteousness, but apart from Christ, we are under a severe, meticulous, heart-searching judgment. Apart from Christ, we're in a helpless and a hopeless place. No one, Paul is saying, no one will be justified. No one will be declared under the the judgment of God. No one will be declared righteous by the works of the law because we're incapable of doing them. We live under sin. So what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for us as we approach the Lord's Supper? We, as Christians, in our observations and our thinking about other Christians and about the general society around us, we need to live in a state of humility and repentance. We need to cultivate those spiritual aspects to our own lives. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to 
repentance. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, section 6 about the law, we're told that this, that the, the law is like a searchlight for the soul. It discovers the sinful pollution of our nature, our hearts, and our lives. It's a tool to help us examine ourselves, to convict us of sin, to bring humiliation or humility, hatred of sin, and to give us a clear sight of our need for Christ, His perfection, and His obedience. So when we, as the yous, point the finger at the thems, are we also pointing it at ourselves? Are we, are we also realizing and claiming that, yes, they've got sin problems, but we do too. We all are under the wrath of, of God. We all need a righteousness that comes apart from the law, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to close with these words from David in Psalm 51.16. He says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So as we approach the table, let me ask you, who are you? Are you the Pharisee? that looks at those outside of your comfort zone and say, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like that person. Or do you come to this table like the tax collector with his head bowed down, saying, God, oh, be merciful to me, for I'm just a sinner in need of grace. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, We thank you for the testimony of Paul. We thank you for his sharing of his gospel with the Romans, for his sharing it with us. And we pray, O Lord, that we would be quick to judge ourselves and slow to judge others, that we would be more concerned about the log in our own eye than the speck in our brother's eye, that we would come to this table with broken and contrite hearts, that we would come like the tax collector and not like the Pharisee. Oh, Lord, that we would come as a people who know, apart from Christ, we are under the wrath of God, a gospel people coming by faith to a Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.